Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. I am very excited about today's conversation for three reasons. Number one, it presents a window onto a group of people in which I am very interested, but about which I don't know very much myself. Number two, it gives a fresh perspective of how a group of Christians sees God, how they relate to God, how they experience God. And number three, and maybe first and foremost, My guest, Erin Burnett, is not only herself an autistic Christian, uh, such that she can share her own experience, which would, of course, in itself be valuable, but additionally, she did her master's thesis on autistic Christians and how they see and relate to and experience God. In other words, she did qualitative research. She found a bunch more autistic Christians, interviewed them, and looked for themes across those interviews. So as you can tell, I get excited about this kind of stuff. Uh, And it's just like a next level thing. I found Erin through an email she sent me out of the blue. Of course, I was intrigued. Then I read this blog post where she collects a lot of what she found in her thesis. And I was immediately hooked. There will be a link to that blog post in the show notes. But let's get into this conversation uh, with Erin Burnett.
All right, Aaron Burnett, thank you so much for joining me today. I want to admit that my interest in autism is growing exponentially right now, and I'm excited to be in this doctoral program where I have a lot of resources to learn about it, but I haven't really done any of that yet. So I don't know what I'm talking about at all, and I am going to rely on you as the expert on yourself and, you know, at least to some degree, you know much more than I do about the community more broadly. So just letting you know ahead of time, I'm going to lean on you heavily in that sense. Okay. So let's start with a little bit about the spectrum in general. For those who don't know much about it and certainly haven't thought about autism as it relates to theology or Christian expression, what would be most important to know about it broadly? Most simply, Autism means your brain works differently from neurotypical people. And neurotypical is just the fancy word for people who don't have autism, ADHD or another presentation. Because it's a spectrum, it is impossible to generalise because everyone is different. There are some traits that almost every autistic person has, such as difficulties with social communication or sensitivity to light and sound and texture. And of course, there's many benefits as well, like having very good memory, very intense focus. And also, I really appreciate at the start that you said I am an expert on me and not that I am an expert on everyone with autism, because I am not. And I want to make that clear. I am definitely not speaking for everyone. Well, yeah, that's good. And uh, it's funny it's actually something that we learn in the program that your client is the world's leading expert on themselves. Uh, yeah. And it's actually the kind of thing that you can forget sometimes. I actually find it really interesting and, and it actually has some interesting theological implications, but we'll leave that to the side for now. So it is a spectrum and it is, uh, it, it widely varies. How do you understand where you fall on that spectrum? Like what words do you put around that for your own particular place? So I have what we used to call Asperger's syndrome, but we don't use that diagnosis anymore. Um, We just use the general blanket term of autism. I think the best way to describe it for myself is that I just live in my own world. And (laughs) (laughs) when it comes to school or work or faith, I never do things the conventional way, but I I get there in the end in the most roundabout way of doing things. Can I ask you a dumb question? How do you know that you're in your own world, let's say in a different way than I might be or my wife or your friend? I suppose really I don't because obviously I can't see inside people's minds. But I think just in general, I seem much more content to spend most of my time alone than perhaps the majority of people. But then again, that could just be an introvert thing and not necessarily an autism thing. Yeah, it's hard to say, right? Yeah, okay. So there's one thing I do want to talk about before getting into the sort of faith stuff. And this is a really – this is a difficult subject. I feel like I will have a much better grasp on this in a couple years, but still, it's on my mind. I have uh, multiple friends who identify as being on the spectrum. In older parlance, we would have called them high-functioning I understand there's some pushback against that terminology these days. I think just because the things that count as high functioning tend to be the things that neurotypical people like, and it's not necessarily a flourishing question. But here's the thought. 
when we get further into the spectrum, at some point we really do start to talk about flourishing and the and a word like disability feels more appropriate the further in we get. But on the outer reaches or, you know, closer to, I guess, high function, whatever the better term is for that, you know, the, these friends of mine who identify this way, they like themselves. They feel like you do, that there are great benefits to the way that their brain works. One of these friends thinks he really believes, and I don't necessarily doubt him, that autistic people will unlock more of like the future needs for humanity than non-autistic people. He could totally be right about that. But the further in we get to that diagnosis, people's lives really can seem to be quite rough. And I just wanted to have you kind of weigh in on that. Any thoughts you have about, because it is such a spectrum, there's almost not even a a good single way to think about it, you know? I know, and it is something I think about. So, for example, even though I might have the same diagnosis as someone who requires 24-7 care, we both present extremely differently. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think the reason why we've moved away from the high-low functioning terminology is mostly because it's too, it oversimplifies things. Yes. So a lot of us may be very high-functioning in one area of life, but not quite as adapt at other areas. And again, it all depends on whether or not that's a bad thing is not being, for example, for nonverbal people, well, there are other ways to communicate other than verbally. So it's not necessarily a problem that they can't verbally communicate. Yeah, it's so interesting. Go ahead. Sorry. I was just going to say, although I do realize it does make it more difficult to exist in society as it is if you are nonverbal. Yeah, society seems to be the, 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 the clue there, right? Because uh, and I'm, I'm not comparing people with autism to dogs, but dogs can't talk. But it doesn't bother dogs, presumably, that they can't talk because no other dogs are talking. You don't get the sense that this dog really wishes he could engage in conversation and these other dogs don't seem to care. You know, there's a kind of maybe it's about expectations and that a mm-hmm. nonverbal autistic person still lives in a society where they see a bunch of humans being verbal. And that might affect their expectations in a way that causes them suffering. I mean, it's again, it's very hard to know what counts as suffering and we, we can't put ourselves in someone else's mind. But it strikes me that that's relevant. Yeah, I, I'm reminded, even though autism by itself is not a disability, I'm sure you're familiar with, you know, the debate between the medical model and social model of disability, you know, is the problem with the person or is the problem with society? Right. And with autism in particular, there are a lot of things that society can do, not even that dramatic, that would make life a good deal easier for people who are autistic. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Well, okay. All that stuff is fascinating. I imagine there will be episodes in the future, given the increasing psychological focus of this show. But that's what we're talking about today, because what we are talking about today is just this fascinating line of thinking and inquiry that you have opened up in your own writing and that I'm very grateful that you reached out to me about because I'm super interested in it. And that is how different Christian theologies basically appear to or hit or resonate with people with autism, yourself included. So I guess my question is a little bit of an autobiographical one. When did you realize that the way that your brain is organized was such that you experienced Christianity differently than some other people around you seemed to be experiencing it? So my journey of faith is quite bizarre. 
So I was raised in a fairly standard mainline Christian household. But when I was a teenager, I decided I would read the Bible for myself, cover to cover. And I took it all extremely literally because, (laughs) well, that's quite an autistic thing to do, isn't it? So because of that, I wanted to try and find a church that would take it as literally as I did. Wow, interesting. You know, when normal teenagers want to rebel... They like do sex and drugs and things like that. Yeah, but yeah. I, I did, I did fundamentalism instead. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> yeah, and then how yeah. did your and so your parents were more kind of like culturally Christian. You did go to church, so they would be in the UK. That'd still be. Oh def- no, they're, they're definitely genuinely yeah, okay. committed yeah. Christians, just of the more yeah. nice kind. <laughs> <laughs> okay, laying your cards on the table about fundamentalism here early. I right, appreciate that. I, I want to spend a little time on this idea of because of your brain, the way it's organized, you wanted to take it very literally, very straightforwardly. And so you thought, hey, fundamentalism, these are the people that take it the most straightforwardly. So what happened after that? Theological college was the turning point, definitely. Yeah. Even though the, the college I went to is by no means liberal, but they introduced me to the concept of nuance yeah. and critical thinking, etc. And it was a rough transition, but I eventually did transition to a much more liberal form of faith, which I think just makes me a nicer person in general. Okay. So, but to back up a tiny bit. So for a while then it worked to be in the fundamentalist context. You're like, great. I'm around like-minded people who are, it's, it's six days. God did it in six days. We're all in agreement. When did the sheen start to wear off of that fortuitous relationship that you had? I think like quite a lot of people, people join very strict churches like that when they're at a low point in life. So for me, I was just dreadfully lonely and communities like that just seem to be the solution to all your problems. I think one of my frustrations as time went on was that most of the preaching was about what we are against. So we were against Catholics, gays, etc. But I didn't think there was enough preaching about what we are for. What do we actually stand for? How are we going to live like Jesus? I think too much of the focus maybe was we must get saved so we don't burn in hell instead of how can we be like Jesus in the here and now? I think that's one of the reasons why I ended up transitioning to a more progressive form. And also in in Northern Ireland, where I'm from, unfortunately, fundamentalism does tend to be tied up in sectarianism. I wonder what that's like. (laughs) We are recording this, by the way, on Election Day morning. We should tell people, forgot to say that this is our way, at least my way of at least giving myself 90 minutes of sanity and interesting projects to work (laughs) on before I just bite my nails all day. Uh, But yeah. I uh, we, we're well aware in the states of what it's like for fundamentalism to be sectarian uh, and party driven, so we we can relate to that. Yeah, so that was another thing that disillusioned me slightly because I remember it was actually one of my teachers at school made an offhand comment like, "Well, Jesus wants us to care for the poor, doesn't he?" And I was like, "Oh, flip, you're right. I need to change my <laughs> theology." <laughs> Well, so I wanted to ask you about that. So you are you're sitting there in your fundamentalist church and you're like, man, they're preaching all the time about just saving ourselves from suffering. There's very little about what we're for. There's a lot about what we're against. 
where did you get the idea that it mattered what we are for? You know, like, did that also come from a literal reading of Jesus, for instance, or did it come from your teacher or, or you know, what? Yeah, I think it was reading the teachings of Jesus because I, I did tend to notice that most of our readings in church were from the letters of Paul. And we didn't we <laughs> yeah. didn't actually seem to look at the Gospels much unless it was Easter. And I, I did notice that. So then when I went and revisited the Gospels without the fundamentalist lens, all the practical stuff suddenly became really apparent. And I was like, how did I even miss this to begin with? Okay, this is – now I'm going to throw this out there. This is entirely conjecture. I have not learned this in my doctoral program. I'm just riffing. I wonder – and maybe you have some insight from your own experience or fellow autistic friends of yours. I wonder if there is a connection between a reduced sort of social social intelligence or social – I don't know what the, whatever the term you want to use for that is. If one of the consequences for that reduction – of that sort of capacity is a corresponding reduction for some of the kind of in-group and out-group biases and distortions, which is what they are, that neurotypical humans have. So you talk about being in that fundamentalist church and they're spending so much time talking about the other people outside of the group. Well, there are terms for this in psychology. Now I am getting into my actual training, you know, Outgroup homogeneity bias is a bias that says my group is tremendously varied and unique, but people unlike us are all the same. Like this can be demonstrated, for instance. So – and there's a bunch of these in-group, out-group biases. I wonder if there's a connection there between the way that – in terms of the way the brain is structured. Am I completely off? Is there something to that in your opinion? No, I I think you're getting at something. And obviously, you know, I'd have to look into it a bit more, but – I don't think tribalism ever really appealed, even when I was in the church, if we use the gay example. The only reason I could give to why loving same-sex relationships were wrong is because the Bible said so. I never bought into any of these arguments that, oh, they're terrible people, because I knew many of them, and they're not terrible people. So, I, yeah, I never understood the demonization of outgroups. Yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. So you went to a school that has something called a bachelor's dissertation. This is not, I don't think, very common in the States. Oh, is um, it but not? I, I don't think so. But I'm going to ask you about that work. So, But can you just – what is that? Like that's like uh, at the end of your regular university degree, you write a, a giant paper, a big research paper or something like that? Yeah, it's not even that giant. It's only 6,000 words. Um, the very end of your undergraduate degree, my Bachelor of Theology – you don't have to do a dissertation, but it's an option. And I quite like the idea of doing independent research. So yeah. I picked it. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So you decided to write this on autism and Christianity. Why do you want to do that? Specifically, it was adult autistic people in Christianity because I noticed that a lot of what has been written focuses only on children, hmm. which is obviously excellent, but children grow up. <laughs> so... I was interested in interviewing fellow adults just to see what their experiences were, what worked for them, what didn't. Is there anything the church can do to help them? It was actually really difficult to get the university to approve my project because normally undergraduates aren't allowed to work with vulnerable groups. And they included autistic people 
in their vulnerable group list. But eventually, with the help of my supervisor, we got them to give us the go ahead. And then I did the project. So this is definitely different than the States. You know, I went to, I did undergraduate. And even though I finished, I took a break to play in a band for seven years. And then I finished <laughs> nice. later on. Yeah, that was good. But, you know, I wasn't doing like legit research. Uh, so you did some research for this project. So what did that consist of? I did. And I actually ended up being highly commended in the Global Undergraduate Awards, which is just awards for, as the word suggests, research done by undergraduates. Although because of ethical constraints, the number of people I could interview was quite limited, but I made do with what I was allowed to do. So I interviewed autistic adults who go to church. I interviewed parents of nonverbal people who couldn't speak for themselves. And I also interviewed some charity workers. So all in all, with those many different perspectives, I got quite a good multifaceted picture of the experiences of autistic people in church. Well, tell us your findings. <laughs> what were the key findings? See, I'll divide my findings into practical and theological. Practical findings, I did find that the majority of autistic people tend to gravitate towards Episcopal or Catholic churches, probably because of the high levels of ritual and all that sort of jazz that we're into. Um, yeah. The, I did interview one girl actually who was from a charismatic church, like one of these really hip and trendy mega churches. And she said one of the things she did struggle with in that type of church was the sensory overload because, you know, the <laughs> worship services are pretty much like rock concerts, right? which is fine. But for an autistic person, that's extremely overwhelming. But what her church did was that they provided earplugs or headphones at the door for anyone who wanted them. And something like that, it's really simple. It's really inexpensive, but right. it means so much because it means people like me can participate without feeling uncomfortable. It's so like that, you were mentioning yeah. earlier, there are little things that can be done. And that's, yeah, that's the kind of thing we wouldn't necessarily think of, but makes a huge difference. Yeah. So earplugs or headphones was one thing that a lot of my interviewees mentioned Another one, and this was from someone who was a parent of an autistic son, he said that their church had like a breakout room. So if the main service was too overwhelming, they had a smaller room where the service was broadcast, but it was a lot more quiet and chill. And he said, actually, you know, it wasn't just autistic people who used the breakout room. There are some neurotypical people who quite like quiet. So right. if you make adjustments for autistic people, Everyone benefits. <laughs> yeah, that's so interesting. So let's talk about some of the theological implications or, or findings. Yeah, this is you where had. it gets this, interesting. <laughs> and this is where we're going to get into your own blog post that you sent to me too about yourself. And I'm, I'm fascinated by this. So what'd you find theologically? So I found several really interesting studies that have already been done. And they demonstrate that autistic people are far more likely than average to have a naturalistic worldview. And by that, I mean, we tend to prefer explanations that are more scientific and empirical as opposed to supernatural. You know, a stereotypical example might be Sheldon Cooper in the Big Bang Theory, that sort of way of mind. And of course, this has very interesting implications for religion. So there was a 2012 study from the University of British Columbia 
And they found that when autistic people talk of God, a lot of the time we're not thinking of a being. We're not thinking of the old man in the sky. We're thinking of a concept. So, for example, I really like John Shelby Spong's definition of God because he says that God is not a noun. God is a verb, a verb that invites us to live, to love, to be. So whenever we act in love and live life to the full, as Jesus said, we are experiencing God. It's not necessarily an external supernatural force. There was another study from the University of Boston, and it found that autistic people were more likely than neurotypical people to identify as atheist or agnostic. And if they were religious, they often interpreted their religion in slightly different ways, which is quite interesting. And of course, that presents challenges for certain types of theology, because particularly with fundamentalism, there is one way of thinking about God. That one way is the correct way. And any way that deviates from that is heresy, which doesn't quite work for a lot of autistic people because we tend to be nonconformist. How can we love God with all our heart, mind, soul and strength if we're forced into a way of thinking about God that is not compatible with how we see the world? How can you love God with all your mind? Exactly. If your mind is differently wired and structured than your pastor's mind. Exactly. Oh, that's so fascinating. Can I, I have a couple uh, thoughts from that, but I, if we can, I want to drill down to the extent you're comfortable to emotions and your, your lived experience of that. Mm -hmm. Can you describe your own experience of being told or recognizing that or however it happened that your church, your old church, really was incompatible with the way that your mind was going to experience God. What did that feel like? What was that experience like? I actually, after I left the fundamentalist church, I ended up at a charismatic like student group for a few years. And just to clarify, in case some of them are listening, I love you. My problem is not with the people. My, <laughs> my problem was with some of the theology. <laughs> so, because obviously charismatic faith is really big on your personal relationship with Jesus. Right. But... My approach to faith has always been more like empirical and intellectual as opposed to relational, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So even though I sincerely tried, I never had that personal relationship with Jesus that people spoke about because I find it hard enough to have a personal relationship with someone I can see, let alone someone I can't. And I, I also thought that a lot of them um, a lot of modern worship songs sound more like they're written about someone's girlfriend than Jesus. Yep. <laughs> yes. Um, so I, I don't necessarily have a direct line to God that some people seem to have, you know, that they speak to him and he speaks back. But that doesn't mean I don't experience God. So, for example, the Bible says that we're all temples of the Holy Spirit. Christ is all and is in all. So therefore, my experience of God is mediated through my experience with other people. That is so interesting, Aaron. A few things I want to follow up on. One thing you said is, you know, if all of us are supposed to love God with our whole mind and there are different minds, let's put it exactly. that way. It actually makes me think it's it's similar 
if you wanted to turn it into an argument form, about the presence of intersex people and mm. um, the uh, God created them male and female. And they problematize a claim like that by, by their sheer existence, that one in a thousand babies require, in the US anyway, require a medical expert to give their opinion as to their gender, their, mm. their biological sex rather. And some smaller portion than that, they have some mixed set. They have differential hormonal levels that don't match their uh, genitalia, you know, all, all this stuff, right? That sort of puts the lie to, well, there are these two kinds of bodies. In fact, empirically, there are not two kinds of bodies. There is this third category, and it has variation within itself. And if we wanted to say, look, there are just human minds, or probably a fundamentalist would say souls, and they're all the same. And they all should be able to get the same truth from the Bible, no matter what. Well, turns out, preacher, they're actually not just one kind of mind capable of love, relationship with God, care of creation, enjoyment of, you know, whatever. So that's really interesting. Yeah. And, and in terms of how, how churches should then respond to this, in my research, I found churches tend to take one of two positions if they mention it at all. So some of the more depressing things were there are some churches that say you are welcome if you change. So, for example, I'm sure you're familiar with Bethel, the mega church. Yes, in Redding, California. Very familiar. There was an article on their website. Now, I'm not it might have been taken down, but I am quoting verbatim. It said that Jesus can set you free of autism and make you normal. I was like, oh, my word. <laughs> Oh. And they also said in the same article that vaccines cause autism, and I was about to despair. <laughs> <laughs> but but it, it isn't just the Bethel types, though. I found quite a large archdiocese, like a Catholic archdiocese in America, and it said on their website, autistic people are welcome if they can sit still. And I was like, oh, my word. <laughs> Can you imagine Jesus saying, okay, you can listen to me, but if you can't sit still, off you go. <laughs> it's the furthest thing I can imagine Jesus saying. You bring up the the vaccine thing, and this is something that I have seen written and I've heard it said, but I don't think it gets a lot of attention. Obviously, the misinformation around the vaccine autism thing is maybe we would call it the primary issue is that millions of people do not get vaccinated for a fabricated reason. And the, the, the guy who did that study literally admitted that he made up the data. He got um, struck off as a doctor, didn't he? Yes, he lost his license. He was sued. He, I don't know if he went to prison, but he admitted it. He fabricated the data. It is a bogus study. And it has not been able to be rep replicated, of course. But another angle of that issue is how it makes people think about autism it, it kind of demonizes autism as like the worst thing that could happen to your kid. And yeah. I think there's a lot of interesting sort of sub themes grouped in there. Obviously, as we said earlier, I think that some people fear a really serious case of autism. And I get that. I would yeah. not, I probably would not wish a serious case of autism on anybody. It, as far as I can tell, I don't know. It seems like a harder life to live. And definitely challenging for parents, and I get that mm -hmm. they would be afraid of their lives being turned upside down. However, there are all these other people with autism who are living quite good lives and don't need 
you know, the they don't need the extra bullshit from society lumping them in with the the scariest boogeyman in, you know, parenting literature or something. So I don't know. Just curious what you think about that angle of it. I did find that it's much more of an issue in America than it is in the UK. I don't think the whole anti-vax thing is quite as much of a problem, although I think it's somewhat increasing now with talk of corona vaccines, but that's a whole other conversation. Right. Yeah. But yeah, I there's so much there's so much disturbing literature out there, you know, implying that autism is demon possession and all sorts of not very nice things. But then that's where the church can come in and ha- and be a prophetic voice in the biblical sense of the term. You know, speaking God's truth into the situation. And well, when Jesus talked about the kingdom of God, he was talking about, you know, a society where everyone's welcome, even people that are normally outcasts in society. So the church, instead of trying to make out that we're all demon possessed, should be trying to welcome us because I would hope that that is what Jesus would have done. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. One other thing to follow up on what you were saying earlier, when you were talking about, you know, uh, Shelby Spong saying, God is a verb, not a not a noun, talking about how autistic Christians tend to think of God in less personal, like anthropomorphic terms, basically. I had an interesting thought while you were saying that, which is that I often have to kind of catch myself. So my actual understanding of God is probably pretty close to yours uh, or, or Shelby Spong's, like verb. I do think of God as communicative. And so in that sense, you know, communication is a thing that humans also participate in. But of course, humans aren't the only creatures that communicate. Uh, That doesn't make God a homo sapien because God communicates, Mm -hmm. right? So if I actually drill down to what I think about God, it is more this kind of like, it's, you know, it's personal, but impersonal also. It's, It's the ground of being. I believe that you and every other person are within God that like when Jesus says, whatever you did for the least of these you did for me is like a literally true statement because like they are Christ. We are all Christ to it. Obviously not, not in the kind of self-help guru kind of a way. Well, we're all little gods. I don't mean like that. I mean, everything is within God. And so when we offend creation, we offend God. When we care for creation, we care for God. But I catch myself, maybe, this is the thought, maybe as a neurotypical human being, I catch myself anthropomorphizing more than I actually believe if I were to like write it out and argue for it and defend it, what I think God is like. And so I think that's really interesting that there's a kind of a, I slip into these common neurotypical forms of theologizing that probably have less to do with my theology and somehow more to do uh, with the way that a neurotypical human being gets through a day. You know, something like these very basic, just mental processes, something like that. Yeah. And of course, it's not a problem if people relate to God anthropomorphically. It only becomes a problem if they then expect everybody else to relate the exact same way that they do. Sure. But no, I think you're correct. Humans particularly neurotypical humans, do tend to anthropomorphize pretty much everything or ascribe agency to everything. So I suppose an example would be, say there's a storm. Some people might automatically say, oh, punishment from God. 
the autistic person might look at it and just say, it's a force of the weather. There's nothing, nothing special about it. That's a silly example, but. Well, no, it's actually not a silly example. I would guess that by now it's been over a year since this episode came out, but I did an episode over a year ago with Justin Barrett, who's an evolutionary psychologist uh, at Fuller Seminary. I think he's left now, but he, I guess he's technically not there anymore, but he was. And he is up on all the evolutionary psych research about children and babies and, and adults. And one of the really interesting findings in evolutionary psych is that your statistically average humans, they will infer causation or intent rather. So it's like a, a teleological is the term they use. So things are there for a purpose, for a reason. So if you ask children, why is this rock flat? They will not say it just got that way or the wind and the rain made it that way. They'll say it's so animals can sit on it. Mm-hmm. And if you put naturalistic atheists under high cognitive load where you you have them doing you know memory – like intense memory problems or whatever and then you ask them similar kinds of questions where there is a the choice for them to answer in a naturalistic way. Oh, it just is that way. Or to answer in a teleological way, it's that way because someone intended it to be that way. It's that way for some purpose. Under high cognitive load, they'll answer that it was for some purpose. Even people who don't believe in God and don't believe there is a purpose in that sense. So there is something hardwired about the average brain that leans toward teleology. It leans toward uh, functional explanations of things, not chance or, well, this one just happens to be that way. You know, uh, and I think about this a lot because my wife and I did IVF for our son and for his brother eventually who is in the freezer right now, which is its own very weird thing to think about. But like what – which which uh, egg did he, did he get and which sperm of mine did he get? Do I think of that as necessarily God chose this sperm and that egg to make him that way? Or do I think he got one of the eggs and one of the sperm? And God would have been fine with any of it, and we would have been fine with any of it, and we would have loved him, and he would have been a little different, and it just is, you know? And so I've been talking for a long time. Your turn. The same research papers I mentioned that were talking about autism and God, they also talked about that teleological urge in humanity, and that on average, it tends to be less with autistic people. Again, we're generalizing, but on average. The key word that you used is, it just is. And that does tend to be my, one of the big problems I had, and every Christian has it, was the problem of suffering. Like, for example, I have arthritis. It sucks. The theological answers never really did anything for me. Like, oh, it's a punishment for sin, or what else is there? It's for the glory of God, etc. I am much more content if I just say, it just is. It is a byproduct of nature that my joints decided to destroy themselves. I don't see any grand cause behind it. It just is. And that's just the way I think. Can I ask you a follow-up about that? So in the moment, we can ask, is it there for a purpose or is it just the way it is? But there's another question we can ask. I think about this a lot, that there is that question of in the here and now or the thing that already happened. Um, that exists now, the the state of things now, are they that way for a reason or is are some of this or a lot of it just chance just happens to be that way? Where I then go theologically, what I think is more theologically important for me 
is the next step. So like, should I use Christianity or my theology, my understanding of God to make sense of what happened primarily, or should I primarily use it to make sense of what's going to happen next? And I increasingly am moving to that. So it's like, what makes me a Christian is what I can do with whatever is here. Not necessarily to explain how it got here, but what makes what makes a world with God versus a world without God is the possibility of the next moment and the call, the lure, the invite into bringing the kingdom to heaven to whatever extent I can participate in that in each subsequent moment. It's a forward look uh, rather than a explanatory backward look to simplify it. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think I would agree with you because my current understanding of Christianity is that it's a way of life as opposed to a set of doctrines and dogmas. So yeah, for, for example, I'm currently doing a master's degree in practical theology and practical theology has always been my favorite because like you say, it's all about, well, what can we do now to make this world more in keeping with Jesus' vision of the kingdom of God? I am less concerned about how exactly we got here theologically. I am more concerned with, like you say, how we can move forward in the most loving way. I did systematic theology at undergrad, but I think it ended up just frustrating me a lot because not to insult systematic theologians, but a lot of it seemed quite arbitrary, particularly when you go back to church history. A lot of what we call orthodoxy is simply because someone won the argument and the loser ended up being a heretic. It really was quite arbitrary. <laughs> no, it's true. I mean, this is why I find myself increasingly interested in arguments that can find some kind of evidence for them. And oftentimes that's em empirical of some sort. Maybe maybe some aspect of the argument would have an empirical consequence that you can measure. But it might even also just be like, I'll take kind of straight theology or philosophy over appeals to church history a lot of times. It's like, okay, so that's what that guy thought. But like, that's not in the Bible. I mean, I don't. how much do I weigh that? You know, appealing to some authority like, well, these people don't like that guy and these people do like that guy. And how do I know if I should like that guy? You know, I, I'm just like multiplying, I'm multiplying gray areas upon each other which makes the whole thing a lighter and lighter shade of gray. I mean, in church history, it is interesting because it shows us how we got to where we are, but it literally is just a history of old white guys arguing with each other. <laughs> yeah. Arguing and using, uh, sometimes using state power to coerce each other, which is worse. And burning people who disagree. Right, right. <laughs> okay, Aaron, let's take a short break. And when we come back, I want to talk about how autistic theology or whatever you want to call it is is of a piece with liberation theology and, and other mm -hmm. um, approaches like that. So we'll be right back. You can, of course, join the Patreon community for this show. It's five bucks a month. But if you really can't swing that right now, and of course, I understand that, especially during COVID, you can email me. There's a sliding scale. You have permission podcast at gmail.com. Uh, next week, I'm going to play a clip from the episode that's coming out this week for patrons with Chris Hoke, where we have what starts as a friendly debate about Calvinism and religious abuse, but devolves or evolves, I should say, into kind of a pastoral um, meditation 
on Isaac the Syrian and this much more beautiful way of thinking about God's power and God's love. I'll leave you with that. Patreon.com slash Dan Koch. Links in the show notes. Back to my conversation with Aaron. All right, Aaron. So I want to start here with a quote from uh, this wonderful essay. You call it ramblings of an autistic Christian, but it's really not ramblings. It's actually, it reads kind of like a distillation of your dissertation. You quote research, you ex- you express your own experience. It's actually quite well written and well organized. So ramblings is a wrong word. And I will, of course, link to this um, essay in the show notes, and I encourage people to read it. But I want to I want to quote you here about connecting autistic theology, or at least autistic Christian perspectives, to other kinds of theology. What what are often called um, they call them marginal theologies. What is it called? Not specialty. I don't know. But like feminist theology, liberation theology, etc. Mm-hmm. Here's a quote. Too often, theology regarding marginalized groups focuses on how to pull these groups into the ecclesiastical fold, enforcing conformity to theological norms. The liberation theologians of the 20th century had a different understanding. Theology should come from the margins by listening to diverse perspectives and receiving new theological understandings beyond the established norm, end quote. Would you riff on that a little bit for us? I I was really inspired by the liberation theologians from the 20th century. So these were mostly South American Catholic priests who, instead of, you know, the usual approach to the poor was to see them as a massive problem to be solved, basically a burden on the church. And they thought, well, why don't we flip this on its head? Maybe the poor have prophetic potential that the church is missing out on because it's refusing to listen to them. So instead of just standing there and preaching to the poor, essentially they handed the metaphorical microphone over to them and they allowed marginalised groups to speak for themselves. And quite often, again, using the poverty example, because that's how liberation theology started, people who do live on the breadline tend to have much greater theological insights than people who live in the lap of luxury. Because these people, you know, They know what it is to be hungry, to weep, all of these things that Jesus talked about, you know, in the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor. These are the people we need to be listening to. So then how does that apply to autism? Well, actually, before we apply it, I want to give a little bit of context there that I'm just not sure everybody is aware of. So Pope Francis comes from basically these thinkers. He's Argentinian. He was really influenced by these liberation theologians. And when he became Pope, he did not live in the papal apartment or whatever. And he lives in a, a simpler dwelling, whatever it is. And that's all kind of of a piece with what we're talking about. So just to give some global context. And then also in the States, for instance, black liberation theologians picked up this uh, issue of just straight poverty from Latin America and added the racial discrimination element to it. And so the lynching tree becomes the symbol for the cross for James Mm -hmm. Cone. And we should be looking to the group of people in America who are being killed and persecuted as closest to Christ. And that's why James Cone said Jesus was black. He doesn't mean that Jesus is black necessarily in Sweden, but in America, Jesus is black because that's where he is. And I'm, you Mm -hmm. know, I don't, I don't understand his work well enough. I, I may have gotten some of that wrong, but you guys get the idea. 
And so now let's apply that to autism. So as I mentioned in the previous segment, traditionally churches have said, well, yes, autistic people are welcome with conditions. So like the Bethel example, as long as you get supernaturally cured of your autism, things like that. Liberation theology, on the other hand, would say, well, no, they are welcome. And instead of posing a problem, they pose great theological potential because these people with completely different minds can give us different insights into theological matters that perhaps we'd never considered before. And hopefully the whole church benefits when we look at different ways of doing things because theology doesn't stand still. That's the reason why we have 66 books of the Bible and not one, because theology is always developing. There's always more to be said. You know, if, as we always say, we worship a living God, well, if God's still alive, then he's still got more to say. And we should be listening to people who have interesting things to say. Now, of course, that doesn't doesn't mean that every single thing an autistic person says is necessarily correct, per se, It just means it's worth listening to and worth discussing. (laughs) Yeah, you don't want to do the reverse kind of imperialism there where you you say, well, we're so tired of having your views plastered on us. We will now plaster our views onto you. Yes, yes. Right. You want to be the change you want to see in the world and and have a roundtable and have an ongoing discussion. But there's – strikes me there's something actually additionally interesting about autistic theology – that is maybe different than sort of theology coming from the poor or the oppressed. And I I suppose this might be overgeneralizing, especially about the poor and the oppressed. But a lot of autistic people are savants in a lot of areas. They they basically have, for lack of a better term, superhuman, like off-the-charts abilities in some areas – as I don't know, I don't know how it works, but maybe the brain compensates for something because of something else, and you end up with these, you know, geniuses. Basically, it also strikes me that that's interesting. That like if we have a set of people, some percentage of whom are geniuses that love God and participate in just the classic, you know, Christian life. Wouldn't we want to know what they have to say? Like, isn't that an additional reason to be curious? And I, I hope I'm not being too, you know, reductive or making it all about performance or anything, because I don't think that that's like the only value to a person with autism. But it does strike me as an additional possible value to to that line of inquiry. So quite often, yesterday's heresy is today's orthodoxy. Hmm. And by that, what I mean is throughout the history of Christian theological development, it often starts with someone who is on the fringe, who says something quite niche, but it's only as time goes on that it becomes much more mainstream. So perhaps by talking to people, not even necessarily just autistic people, but by people who have different insights. Someone has an insight that is counterintuitive to most people at the time, but that people later with a different set of experiences who can look back go, oh, that made, that person was really onto something. And now we basically all agree with that. And so what does it take what does it take for people to be that kind of person that kind of prophet if you will sort of someone who sees ahead a few steps past where most people can see well maybe that person is often not neurotypical and that's what allows them to see it and of course we don't actually have a way of measuring this for or diagnosing 
you know, various saints and mystics and theologians of the past. But how interesting would that be? I wouldn't be shocked if a disproportionate number of those kind of visionaries were non-neurotypical, but they just had no language for it at the time. Yeah, I would agree, because one of the common traits with autism is that you don't tend to care what other people think. You just speak what's on your mind and bear the consequences later. But because of this, perhaps we express things that other people are afraid to express. So, for example, on my blog, if I say something controversial about the Bible or whatever, I quite often get people telling me I am verbalizing what they have always thought. They just dare not say it out loud in case people in the church don't like them anymore. <laughs> right. Like even even Jesus, of course, Jesus' whole ministry was saying controversial things and annoying people. And it's only, you know, in hindsight that we realize, goodness, he was correct. <laughs> 100%. Yeah, 100%. You have this line in your essay that actually helped me. You're quoting John Shelby Spong again, and you're saying, he says, what the mind cannot accept, the heart can never finally adore. And this actually makes me think of, I think in your context, it's like, you know, well, let me just, let's start. Let me take just that question again. Before I get into what it makes me think of for myself, what's the context for you quoting him there? Is this uh, kind of around the supernatural and, and sort of the stuff that we've touched on a little bit? It is, yeah. Going back to what we are talking about previously, if we are supposed to wholeheartedly love God and live for him, how can we do that if our minds can't even, if our minds find it illogical? So, for example, classical theism, you could talk about that for ages, but I do have problems with classical theism because I just see too many logical contradictions in it. So how can I adore something if I find it contradictory? And unfortunately... The typical responses of, oh, it's just a mystery. You've just got to deal with it. <laughs> Didn't quite work for me. So that that's what I mean when I use that quote. I cannot adore something if it doesn't make any sense. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. So that it's actually not kind of where my mind went with it. It was more about what I can imagine than it is about what makes sense. And it makes me think about the eschaton, the, the end of days, hmm. uh, the new heavens and the new earth which is not a problem logically. It's not like there's nothing self-contradictory about that. But there are all these barriers to envisioning it because either it is like of this universe, in which case it doesn't seem to make sense because, you know, the lion can't lay down with the lamb here. We're all competing for the sun's resources and any other planet that has solar resources would have a similar kind of a competition you know, and so I can't really get my mind around it. It's a little, it's more the what, what I'm describing with the eschaton. It's not so much a contradiction like how could God be immovable and also loving, you know, or something like that. Yeah. So I don't know. Do, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. I think a lot of people now are having the courage to say that not just the eschaton, but a lot of things in theology, they can't quite conceptualize it. And the previous responses of oh you just need more faith don't really cut it anymore and again that encourages alternative ways of looking at things yeah i just love this line you have near the beginning of your essay that you know that a lot of people are increasingly identifying as or at least called spiritual but not religious 
but you have recognized that you've usually or always been religious, but not spiritual. And we've gotten to a little bit of that around, you know, the charismatic friends and stuff and relationship with God. And that means God's a person. You don't experience God as a person, but can you say some more about being real? So that's maybe the spiritual side. What about the religious side? So why, why do you identify as religious in that sense? Yeah, I like using the phrase. I like using the phrase "religious, not spiritual," because well, it flips the old cliche "spiritual but not religious," and it's true. I am quite religious, and I, I don't say that to be better than thou. It's just a fact. It's an important part of my routine. So, particularly, I'm now attending quite a high church, Anglican church, and if you so wanted, you could go to church every single day because they do it that often. For someone who likes routine and functions well with routine, that that's quite good. Religion is also a really wonderful source of community. I think that is one of the greatest things about Christianity, that no matter where you are in the world, for example, I've been to 75 countries, but no matter where you end up, as long as it's a fairly large town, you can find a church, you can walk into it, a complete stranger, and be welcomed as if they've known you forever. And I think that is one of the greatest benefits of Christianity and even just religion in general. Yes, it can be used to pull each other apart, but ideally it can be used to pull people together and to form community. And that is why I know a lot of people seem to think that religion is a bad thing. And I understand why, given its track record, but I think there's too much potential in it to throw the baby out with the bathwater, which is why I'm still quite happy calling myself religious and identifying that way. Yeah. That's why this podcast exists because I agree with you about that. So why progressive Christianity? This is something that you mention in the essay and, you know, I I imagine it's going to be kind of pulling together some of the threads of what we've already touched on, but let's make it explicit here. What is it about progressive theology, progressive Christianity that makes more sense to you as an autistic person than more traditional or orthodox understandings? The main benefit of progressive Christianity to me is that it doesn't make you fit into a particular mold. You don't have to fit a very narrow doctrinal list of beliefs. I have found that progressive churches tend to be more welcoming of people like me because they tend to celebrate difference a bit more than the super fundamental churches I think also progressive Christianity isn't afraid of thinking outside the box and it isn't afraid of being nonconformist. So that that suits me quite well. Do you get the sense that the fit for you and progressive Christianity is more about you or more or do you uh, have other autistic friends who experience this? I know you, you did. I don't think you mentioned this with the research you did for the article. You did talk about the supernaturalism and stuff like that, but. I don't know if you actually – did you find that those uh, – the, the interview subjects also preferred progressive churches over more traditional? Well, a lot of them – because a lot of them ended up in Episcopalian churches, they are generally quite progressive. But again, is that because of the ritual or is it because of the progressivism? It could be a mix of both. And interesting that you're in Northern Ireland. Like if you were in, if you were in Ireland, I wonder if it would just be a bunch of people – who became kind of conservative Catholics or something, which Mm. the highly ritualized, you know, mass and all of that. I'd be curious to see if it could be replicated in that sense. Yeah. And that is one of the things when I did go through ethical approval, one of the stipulations was 
I had to interview locals. They weren't going to let me interview internationally. So yeah, if I was to recreate the study, it would be, I think it would be really interesting to compare different countries. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So they ended up in the Episcopal churches and Episcopal churches happen to be liberal theologically. A lot of them, not a lot of them. Right. But your church is the Anglican church that you go to. Yeah. So I'm in Scotland at the minute, actually. So I'm- That's right. I'm going to a Scottish Episcopal church. And again, the Scottish Episcopals are a very broad church, but the one I'm in is more on the liberal side of things. Yeah. Sadly, actually, I found that a lot of autistic people that I spoke to, once they realize they don't fit into evangelicalism, they don't realize that there's a middle ground and they just end up going straight to atheism. Not that atheism is necessarily a problem, but they lose the church community. And when you speak to them, you get the sense that that deeply saddens them. They miss it, but they feel like they can't go to church and be their authentic selves, which is why I think podcasts like yours are so important, because it proves that there is a middle way. There is a way to be both Christian and progressive. Yeah, we really, I appreciate that, but we really have a megaphone problem in Western culture where uh, for whatever reasons and incentives of maybe media companies and, you know, what's newsworthy, et cetera, which I get, you know, people like Jerry Falwell and Franklin Graham have just these massive outsized voices compared to even uh, Bishop Michael Curry, you know, who's like the head of the Church of England or whatever. In theory, that guy should be a lot more well-known and his views a lot more mainstream. He's the Episcopal Pope. I mean, he's <laughs> the high, bishop, yeah. right. He's the presiding bishop of the Episcopal Church, Church of England. Like he should, he empirically has way more power than Jerry Falwell Jr. or Franklin Graham. Franklin Graham runs a nonprofit. It's a big one, but that's his job. And yet he can get on Fox News any night he wants to and reach 30 million people. So there's a weird, massive PR problem for progressive Christianity in that sense. Uh, And it is really sad. It's sad to hear about some of these people that you interviewed who their own potential spiritual religious community lives have been negatively impacted by that media problem, essentially. Yeah. And I also I've had messages from parents of autistic people. A lot of it, they're still children. And the parents say to me, you know, oh, my son hates going to church. How can I make him go And my response is always, don't make him. That'll just make things a million times worse because he'll associate it with being forced to do something he doesn't want. In that case, I think the solution is, well, to let them find their own feet, but also maybe, you know, ask them, what is it about the church that they don't want to go to? Perhaps are there adjustments that can be made? Maybe is there a different type of church that would suit them better? Right. Don't go straight to, oh, we must force him to go because that's just going to turn him off church forever. (laughs) That's so good. I mean, I bet there are just like sort of unending implications for parents with autistic children. And I mean, I feel like you've just sort of opened up the door. And I I guess I'm not aware of – I'm sure there are other people doing this kind of theological work specifically around autism. I'm not aware of it. But it just seems like there are – a thousand applications and like interesting questions to ask. Are you kind of plugged into, I don't know, the theological research or, or other types of research and writing in this community? Is, is there a growing movement? 
A really good charity to look up is the Autism Faith Community. I think it's only in North America, but it's really good. Its mission is to make churches more welcoming for autistic people. And if you go on their website, they even have like a list of churches that are really good with autism and special needs people. Unfortunately, we don't have something quite like that in the UK. We do have Inclusive Church, which is the Anglican's inclusivity website, and autism is one of their subsections. So at least it's being talked about. But yeah, I, I would like it I would like it to be talked about more, obviously. You you briefly mentioned LGBTQ population when you were talking about being younger and not being able to reconcile how that could be sinful other than that it's written in the Bible. But I'm wondering if you could draw more of a line than that even between the way that churches often treat autistic people and the way that churches often treat more conservative churches treat LGBTQ people. What do you, do you think there's a connection there? So just to clarify, my views have changed regarding LGBT people and I am fully affirming. But yes, oh, I, I think do. we all hey, here. We, I think we all assumed <laughs> that now. Yeah, good, good. Um, so yeah, I, I I drew that comparison explicitly, and it was actually quite a risky move because my college was not affirming. Right, but right. so with LGBT people, it used to be that churches said, "Oh, you're welcome," but that welcome was always conditional. You are welcome as long as you change something about yourself to fit in. The same could be said with autistic people. Our churches, are we welcoming with condition or are we extending a gospel of welcome without condition? Are we telling autistic people, okay, you're welcome as long as you conform to our neurotypical way of faith? Or should we say, you are welcome and we are interested to hear what you have to say, even if it is different from what we think? Fantastic. Aaron, I've got some interesting questions here from patrons. So sometimes I will do this. I will let the Facebook group know that uh, I've got an interesting interview coming up and do they have any questions? And this seemed like a pretty good opportunity to do that. And so I, I sent you my earlier questions. You haven't seen these ones. So we're just going to go seat of our pants here. But the first one says this. One of the most frustrating things for me about growing up autistic has been that given a certain social context and group of people, there's a set of unwritten rules that you're just expected to know. One of those unwritten rules, at least in my church, seems to be that the other kids didn't take the whole church thing too seriously and that it was more of a source for identity and morals than anything else. I never got that memo. Sounds like you didn't either, Aaron. So when I heard that I had to believe in God, I felt like I needed to believe. These are all caps, by the way. And when I heard that some people go to hell, I didn't get the memo that I could just brush that off and not worry about it too much. It's kind of funny, but I never actually considered how my ASD played into that stuff. I assumed it was just because I had anxious tendencies. I would be interested to hear if Aaron has had similar experiences. Oh, yes. I, I empathize with that so much. So yeah, when I was at that point of taking everything literally, I was that insufferable Christian who couldn't have a single conversation without bringing the gospel into it. I left tracks in bathrooms, and that is because I earnestly believed that hell was real and most people were going to be barbecued for eternity. And I didn't understand how other Christians could take that so so casually. 
like, oh yeah, we believe in hell. Then why aren't you screaming on the streets about it? Yeah, I think it's autistic people generally have quite an all or nothing approach to anything. And I was definitely all in with the hellfire and brimstone. <laughs> Thankfully, I changed my mind. But yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. That that makes me think of the kind of all or nothing or the, the hyper focus, which as like a, one of those things that has a lot of power and could therefore go in a positive or a negative direction and have quite a bit of power in either of those directions. Yeah. So the focus itself is not the problem. It's just trying to channel it productively. Right. Exactly. It's, it's like having really strong arms, like really strong muscles. That's great if you need to like be building a shed but if you just go and accidentally try to pick up your baby and like <laughs> crush their ribs, oh, then dear. that you know what I'm saying? Like that was dark, uh, <laughs> kind of a cartoonish example. But the strength itself yes. is not the problem, right? It's sort of like when and how to use it and and uh, what to put it toward, right? Okay, next question. This person says, "I have a question. I've never been diagnosed, though I am near certain that I am autistic as well. It's something that I have only been aware of since my late twenties." I read Aaron's post that you shared. I put your essay up and I relate so much that it hurts. My question is, do you recommend adults like me now 31 years old get assessed and diagnosed and why? Since it's so not so much a yes or no diagnosis, but different for every person. What does an official diagnosis actually help with other than justification that I'm allowed to relate with writings such as your own? Yeah, I, I think with me. The diagnosis, like I wasn't diagnosed until I was 18, but it was immensely helpful because so was it aided with my self-understanding and it also, it freed me from the pressure to conform. Yeah. It's almost like it gave me permission to be different, not that mm. we should need permission. Also, depending on what country you're in, there can be like practical financial benefits to being officially diagnosed. So for example, in Scotland where I live now, if you're autistic, you get a free bus pass. Excellent. <laughs> um, also, with a lot of countries, employers are required to make reasonable adjustments for autistic employees to make yeah. sure that we, we can reach our full potential. So I do think it is worthwhile getting a diagnosis. Unfortunately, it does tend to be quite expensive, but I do think it's a worthwhile investment. <laughs> uh, speaking of diagnosis, this person asks, I'm really interested to hear her experience as a woman diagnosed as autistic after childhood. I've heard young girls tend to get underdiagnosed, at least in some countries, due to differences in treatment or expectation between little boys and little girls. So yeah, girls are consistently underdiagnosed compared to boys, not because autism is less prevalent in girls, just because it presents differently and all of the original research on autism was only done on boys. Hence, it tends to be skewed towards them. Stereotypically, girls tend to internalise a lot more, whereas boys externalise. So in childhood, if a girl is really, is under a lot of sensory distress, quite often they just bottle it up and all the anxiety is inside. Whereas with a boy, you might see some more external behaviours like kicking off in school or something like that. Also in my case and in the case with a lot of girls, because I was academically able, I wasn't really flagged up at school because, well, my grades were fine, so I must be fine. Schools don't tend to intervene unless your grades slip. 
Yeah, so I'm not probably the only solution to that is to do more research on girls with autism and not just rely on studies that were done decades ago only with men. <laughs> yeah, to find better uh, indicators and uh, you know basically to norm the different tests on female and male populations to just just like get the instruments better basically. Because w- with me, I I saw so many different doctors while, while I was growing up. And it wasn't until a female psychiatrist I saw, who was like the fifth doctor I saw, she was the one who picked it up. And I'm really grateful for that. But it's just a shame that it did take so many years to get to that point. Yeah, that's so interesting. A couple more here. Are there any characters that you see portrayed in the Bible that you think exhibit qualities of autism? Now, you can't diagnose retrospectively. Of course. Definitely the Apostle Paul in every way, shape, and form. Whoa. (laughs) Okay, let's hear about this. Uh, This sounds like a book project to me, (laughs) Erin. Well, first of all, he's fanatical. He's very much all or nothing. When he was a Pharisee, he was the Pharisee of Pharisees. Hmm. When he became a Christian, he was the Christian of Christians. Um, Certainly hyper-focused. You know, he never got married. He never had children. He was hyper-focused on his one mission in life, which was spreading the gospel. You can also tell from his letters that he's really logical, particularly the letter to the Romans. He likes to systematize his theology. So, yeah, definitely autistic. (laughs) Wow. I am tempted to rename the episode title that I had in my head to Paul was autistic and just clickbait. Just clickbait it. Even though you only talked about it for 30 seconds, just call the whole episode that, and I know people would listen to it. I don't know if it's possible to turn that into a research project, but I I think you should at least consider it. That's really interesting. If you could support that, obviously you can't prove it because you can't diagnose people who are not living, Uh, just like you can't diagnose the president, for instance, unless Mm -hmm. he is your client. You know, so that's ethically, that's true. But if you could support it with strong evidence, I think that would could be kind of a bombshell. I'm yeah, getting it chills. Might, it might give us a better understanding of him and of the beginning of Christianity. Yeah. He also, his thinking was quite inflexible. And by that, I mean, <laughs> whenever it came to arguments, he definitely thought he was right and everyone else was the Antichrist. <laughs> so again. <laughs> <laughs> Literally. <laughs> yeah. They were Antichrist. Wow. Okay. Aaron, you might need to pursue this. I'll One be my PhD. I, this is this is the PhD dissertation. I mean, literally. I don't. I'm not trying to pressure you, but I'd read it. But one thing that'd be really interesting is it would really matter where you land on the Pauline and the pseudo Pauline letters. So, figuring mm. out which ones were likely written by him and which ones were likely written to mimic him. Uh, mm-hmm. And I would really be curious if the different uh, symptoms, if you want to call it that, or characteristics that you're looking for would differ if you separate out those categories based on the general consensus within the New Testament scholarship community. Okay, now I need to go back and reread the New Testament with that in mind. <laughs> yes, this is incredible. I promise to interview you if you do work on this, okay? <laughs> there you go. That's a small incentive. Okay, last question. So. A lot of times with the disability community, you would maybe want to say a person with a disability rather than a disabled person, or for instance, a disabled, a a theologian with a disability rather than a disabled theologian. 
Now, I think a disability theologian might be a little different because that's a topic and not a descriptor, right? I believe you refer to yourself as an autistic Christian and autistic theologian, not a Christian with autism or a theologian with autism. First of all, am I right that that's the verbiage you use? I actually used to use them both interchangeably without really thinking about it until I got an awful lot of criticism for saying Christian with autism. So then I had to, I'm not, I'm very careful with my language now. So yeah. what, what was the, what was that pushback about? I'm curious. I think when you say with autism, it almost sounds like the autism is just a small part of you. Whereas it actually, it impacts every single area of your life. Also, for example, we say people with cancer using the same sort of terminology for autism almost implies that it's like Mm -hmm. a disease to be cured. Yeah, we don't say, no, thank you. I'm a cancer theologian. Thank you very much. I'm not a theologian (laughs) with cancer. So yeah, so to to sort of separate that out, because if autism affects the structure of your brain and your mind, and so the, the seat of your consciousness and the way you experience and make sense of the world, it's just so much more central of a descriptor than something like having cancer, which you wouldn't have cancer one day and then you would have cancer another day. You sort of, you always have autism, right? It doesn't, we're not curing it. It's not, it doesn't go away. People who with rough cases can learn to flourish better with certain skills that they can learn, right? But it's not, we're not rewiring the brain. Uh, Okay, that's, now it's complicated because we do rewire our brains through neuroplasticity when we make decisions, but you know what I'm saying? We're not fundamentally restructuring the brains of people with autism. But I also, I firmly believe that people should identify however they want. Sure. So yes, the majority of autistic people like identity first language, but I think we should still respect the minority who like person first language. Unfortunately, online, I see there's quite a bit of bullying if people use terminology that other people don't like. And that makes me sad. Are you kidding? Are you telling me, Aaron, that you see online bullying about improper terminology? Yes. (laughs) Dripping with sarcasm over here. It is really, it's really the thing we're going to have to figure out on the left. I, I sometimes think that will be our downfall in terms of actually getting shit done is to just laser focus on terminology, which is among the least important things in, in the world. Not nothing. It's not nothing. And certainly call people whatever they want to be called. Don't be rude to each other. But like, I want funding, you know? I want dollars allocated more than I want people to use correct language. Yeah, like I got an article pulled from a progressive Christian website because I must have used the term Christian with autism. And it made me quite sad because I was like, I'm your ally in this, but now I've been cancelled. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Well, we're not going to get into cancel culture today. And that, oh, no. that's making me think t- too much about the election, too. I, oh, I wanna, no, sorry. <laughs> I was doing – we were doing such a good job, Aaron, of keeping me distracted for 90 minutes. Well, I don't, I don't have any more questions for you other than will you come back on the show after you've done some more work on the Paul – autism project. Yes. Once I finish my project about maritime chaplaincy. <laughs> Do you have anything else you'd like to say? Anything we didn't cover that you feel like is uh, worth sharing? No, I think we covered a lot of it. It's probably just worth pointing out that 
Unfortunately, my verbal communication isn't as good as my written communication, which is infinitely frustrating. But I think your verbal communication, uh, <laughs> no, I think it's quite good. But I will agree with you that your writing is is fantastic. And so, again, I will really encourage people to read that essay and, and to check out more of your blog. And I'll also have a link to the Autism Faith Community Organization. I'll find a link for that. And Aaron Burnett, thank you just infinitely for your time. I, this was like, this is the best possible way to spend the morning of election day that I could ever imagine. I loved this conversation and I will certainly be following up on a lot of these questions in my own study. And I'm really grateful for your time. Thank you so much for having me. Feel free to head to patreon.com slash Dan Koch. There's a link in the show notes there to consider joining the Patreon community. That also includes access to the Facebook group, which is only for patrons and which actually more patrons say they appreciate the Facebook group than say they appreciate the uh, extra episodes, the exclusive episodes, not by a huge margin, but by some margin. So that's interesting. The community is more important than hearing me talk more. Who would have thought? Um, and also thank you to Aaron, of course, for joining me today. What a fantastic conversation. What a fantastic conversation and topic. So interesting. I love it. Thank you to Chris Hoke as well for joining me for this uh, patron exclusive episode that will be out uh, this week. Uh, and Josh Gilbert for editing as usual. Josh is available for additional podcast editing work and similar work. His email is also in the show notes. And by the way, did you know, there are links in the show notes to follow me on Instagram or Twitter if you so choose. Instagram is about 70% Soren, my son, and a few other things, uh, including a international logger competition bracket that I am running with my wife and my brother and sister-in-law who are in our COVID bubble. So we are squaring off loggers against each other from across the world. And it's kind of fun. Okay, I'll stop talking. See you guys next week.